Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning, Scott Schantz filling in for Mike Smith this morning. My pleasure to be here with you. we got a great show lined up, and we are going to kick things off talking about Olympic Village. You know, the uh, master-planned community that was built on False Creek. It was a place where uh, athletes who were participating in the uh, 2010 Olympics, they could uh, they could live. That was the village where they all lived and were housed during those Olympics. And then, of course, they went on sale. Uh, people could live there. And uh, now it's this beautiful, wonderful community with great restaurants and cool walking area. There's a great community center down there. But it's missing a school. And what is the, the, the hardest part about this is that that school that is supposed to be there was part of the plan all along. Have a listen to this uh, Global News report from Angela Young. Four years ago, the NDP promised this would finally happen if they're re-elected. No parent wants their kid to go into a crammed classroom. Uh, this extra recovery funding uh, allows this to uh, happen even faster. Fast forward to now, no school has been approved or funded. So a great example of what is happening in our school system, as she mentioned there, kids uh, crammed into classrooms, overcrowded classrooms. There's the issue of kids having to take buses or have parents drive them, sometimes two buses to get to their school. But I think the big issue is if you bought an Olympic Village or you live in Olympic Village, and there are lots of places for families there. There are larger condos, some three-bedroom condos, townhouses, that type of thing. You might have bought there thinking, hey, this is where my kid is going to go to school and live in this great community. And 15 years later, that is still not the case. And then, as Angela mentioned there, the NDP promised that they would get it done in 2020 and still no movement. You got to be disappointed if you're living in Olympic Village. Here now to walk us through some of that is Eleanor Sturko. She's the BC United MLA. Thanks so much for being here, Eleanor. Always great to have you on. Hi, good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so give me your take on this situation in Olympic Village, um, the fact that there's no school built yet and not even not even funded. How, how do you react to that? Well, it's, you know, I feel for the families that, you know, bought houses and made their plans for their lives, essentially, based on the fact that they were promised by the NDP to have this school built by now. You know, they promised it in 2020. And in fact, ministry staff had stated that they would be bringing options forward for the funding in the 2021 budget, but they failed to do so. So now we have three budgets that have gone by this promise not fulfilled. Um, and it's actually just one of many promises in the education world um, where they haven't filled their uh, promises that they made during the election. For example, removing all the school portables in Surrey, they've more than doubled um, you know, so this is the thing. If you're going to make a promise, you have to keep that promise, particularly when you know that families are banking on the fact that you're going to build the school when you say you will. Yeah, and I think that, that is, that's a big part of it, right? Yeah, I know that when uh, my family was looking at where we're going to live or where we might live again in the future, we always take into account schools. Where, what are the schools like there? How easy is it going to be to get there? Are our kids going to be safe to walk to and from there as they age? And certainly you wouldn't expect 15 years, but again, I'm not a civil 
level planner. I don't know what actually goes into planning a school, but one of the talking points that has been brought up is, you know, these things do take time. And of course, all of this takes time. I understand that, that construction and zoning and approvals and all of that. But 15 years does seem like a long time, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, I can tell you that, sure, it was earmarked even before the Olympics earmarked, meaning that it was designated as a place where a potential school could go. You know, in early stages of that, there probably wasn't the population density that we see now. But we're talking about an actual promise to people, you know, give us your votes, give us your supports, and we promise we're going to fulfill this to you. We're going to allow you to plan your life around a move. And let's face it, I mean, look at the state of housing in BC. It's not like people can just buy a new house or buy a new condo. It's, it's, we have land transfer taxes, it's expensive, you know, and so now people have planned their life, made major life investments based on your promise that you didn't fulfill. And not only that, you know, you have your ministry staff uh, like four years ago now saying that they were bringing options forward for the funding in the 2021 budget, and then they didn't do it. And they've had two other budgets since then. You know, it's getting to the state of almost being ridiculous. You know, Minister Bailey had a tweet yesterday regarding, you know, that they were going to bring some, you know, funding in and things are underway and moving forward. And then she quickly deleted it. So, I mean, what is it? Is is there actually a problem? What is the problem? And are things, in fact, not moving forward at all? Yeah, you could be forgiven for uh, not taking that at face value, a tweet like that that talks about finally getting some funding going for a project like this. But let's talk about the families that are affected. What do you hear about uh, schools and population in school classrooms or number of students in school classrooms and the distance that families are sometimes traveling to get their kids to school? Well, having to take two buses, especially for, you know, primary ages, when you're looking at families who are likely in British Columbia, both parents are probably going to be working, um, trying to organize their lives, trying to ensure that they have before and after school care, trying to make sure that they do have that seamless day. When you don't have a school that's at least within a livable distance from where you, you know, are, it makes things very stressful on families. And, you know, the state of classrooms, we have overcrowding every city. You know, it doesn't matter if you're in the north or if you're in the lower mainland or the interior. There are problems across school districts. But, you know, it's insulting, though, when you have a promise and you don't keep it. And, and that goes for so many things. Like, you know, the, I mentioned earlier the portables. This is not a realistic uh, promise that they would have ever made. Okay, like there was no way that they were going to accomplish that. But when you make a promise like that and you don't keep it, you lose credibility. And I think in this case, they've lost all credibility on this Olympic Village school. They made a promise. In fact, multiple times doubling down and saying that the money was coming, the money was coming, they were going to build it. People organized their lives around this and they failed to deliver. And it's, you know, it just speaks to a lack of credibility. And, and frankly, I don't know what the problem is, whether it's incompetence or it's an unwillingness to go ahead with the project. It certainly strikes as one of those things that really cuts through for people. You know, like I talk about my own kids and like when people start to talk about the things that are important to them, kids and education and, you know, sort of your community and the life that you build there is definitely top of the list. Eleanor Sturko, she's the MLA for Surrey South with the BC United Party. Thanks so much for your time, Eleanor, and for the work that you do. It's always great to talk with you. Appreciate your take. Thank you so much, Scott. Take care. 
Good morning, Scott Schantz, filling in for Mike Smith today. We're going to talk about rats, and I would like to know what your experience is. 604-280-9898. You can also text the buzz line, 331-BUZZ. You can always email me to scott at cknw.com. Have you noticed an increase in rats and a lot of people are saying that they are perhaps you've seen the social media video that has gone absolutely viral of a huge group of rats at Burrard Skytrain station uh, a lot of people talking about how disgusting they are and how that the rat population is kind of exploding is that anecdotal is that just we're seeing it or is that kind of kind of true uh, one of the reasons that people are talking about this and thinking that maybe perhaps yes the rat population has exploded has to do with the restriction on a chemical that you could buy to uh, essentially poison rats, but now you can't. This chemical, they stopped selling it to the public in January of last year. So it's been, you know, over a full year since you could buy this uh, this chemical, this, you know, commercial-grade rat poison, essentially. You can't buy it anymore, and people are saying that, well, now that we've stopped putting rat poison out, rat population has exploded. But is that really the case? Here now to discuss is Kaylee Byers. She's a senior scientist with the Pacific Institute on Pathogens, Pandemics, and Society at SFU. Good morning, Kaylee. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. Have you noticed an increase in rats? Is that something that you kind of take notice of or are aware of? You know, it's not something that I'm uh, I'm out there recording actively. I mean, we get, I, I kind of am joking that I'm sort of on the rat rounds because about this time last year, we were also discussing another video of rats and having the same conversation. You know, are we seeing an increase in them or not? And And the reality is that we don't know. We just don't know. Okay, so you, one of the things that I've heard you say is that uh, a correlation doesn't necessarily equal a causation. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, it just means that just because something happens around the same time, say an observation happens around the same time as something else, doesn't mean that it is caused by that thing. So let's say we're saying that we see an increase in rat populations. It doesn't necessarily mean it's due to this uh, change in the use of second-generation um, second anticoagulant rodenticides. And, and again, we'd have to dig down into that question of, like, are we actually seeing more rats or not? And to answer that, we would need the data. Okay. So what would that look like? How would we gather data on how many rats are in the city? Well, ideally what we would have is sort of a systematic tracking program, so something throughout the city where we were tracking rat populations over time. Currently, what we use um, to sort of infer where rats are and how many there are are, say, calls to pest control professionals, right? Anecdotally, uh, pest control professionals are saying they're getting more calls, but, but that data is not perfect because not everybody calls a pest control professional whenever they see a rat, right? There are things like, can you afford a pest control professional to come and manage your rat population? And then the other way we do that is through the city has a 311 line that tracks rat calls, and uh, they are not noticing an increase from past years in calls. But again, that data is not perfect. I mean, when you see a rat, do you call the 311 line? Uh, to be honest, no. I would probably try to deal with the rat myself. Um, but here's the thing. It would bother me and bother my family so much that I feel like I would do anything to get rid of it. Uh, but I would be concerned. Like, there's this talk that once you see one or two, if you don't get rid of them, next thing you know, there's 10. And uh, I think that people, you know, obviously don't want rats living in their space, so they would do anything to get rid of them. Um, and, 
Yeah, so yes, I don't call, but I, I want to ask <laughs> that based on what you're saying, it's like, this is how we gather that we don't have like a robust data gathering system. This is the system that we use. And in part, the system that we use is saying that there is a growing rat problem, at least based on the calls into, into pest control. Well, anecdotally, right? If we don't see a change in the other line, what does that tell us? And, and when we see these, these events, right, it's, it's really challenging because it would be great to be able to answer these kinds of questions, not just around policy changes, but also around aspects of climate change, right? As we have warming environments, uh, I'm originally from Alberta, the rat-free province, right. and, and one of the things that's discussed there is, well, we have really cold winters. Um, maybe could that be one of the reasons that we see fewer rat populations, fewer of them survive through those cold winters. As we have warming climates, could we see more rats? Again, we need sort of a systematic data collection system to be able to answer those kinds of questions. Okay. What is the reason, can you speak to this, that this uh, uh, rat poison, you ha- you gave it a much more um, official sounding term. Why, why did we outlaw this? So it wasn't just about the rats in this case, right? So these poisons go out into the environment. And the intention is to kill rats. But the problem is that those kinds of poisons don't just stay in rats. They end up in the environment and they're a risk to other non we call them non-target or secondary wildlife. So the animals that feed on rats. So owls, other birds of prey, uh, carnivores like coyotes, right? We are seeing increases in the death of other animals through these anticoagulant rodenticides that are used for rats. So, so that's one part of it, right? Where, do, where are those poisons and, and how are they ending up in our environment? And the other part of this question that I think is really important that sometimes gets lost is, you know, are the tools that we're using effective? We've been using this approach of like, see a rat, kill a rat for centuries. And um, spoiler, like it's not working, right? We still have rats. <laughs> They're everywhere. One of the problems with these sorts of see a rat, kill a rat techniques like poisons and, and even trapping, right, is that in order to remove those rats, they have to eat the bait, they have to go in a trap. Well, if you put out bait, say, for a month and you don't catch all the rats, there are other rats there that will just reproduce. And there's research that shows that you can have an increase in populations again in as little as one month. So contacts where things like rat removal are most effective are, say, indoors. But then, again, you have to think about how did the rats get in in the first place? Pest control professionals recognize, you know, exclusion from buildings, environmental management, so reducing the things that allow rats to thrive, like access to food, water, a place for them to live, like uh, soil for them to grow in. Those are sort of the root causes that allow rats to thrive, and we really need to be thinking about addressing those in the long term. Okay. Now, you mentioned the idea that uh, if the rat eats the poison, then another animal eats the rat, then the poison gets passed along, which, of course, I totally understand. One of the things that gets brought up is that rats themselves also carry diseases. How realistic is that, and what's the trade-off there? I mean, sure, the poison gets passed on to owls or coyotes, but are rats also carrying diseases that we should be concerned about? Is there a trade-off there? Oh, this is a fun question. So, and, and maybe most people have a different definition of fun, but I consider this a fun question. So I did my PhD studying diseases in rats here in Vancouver. And yes, rats carry a number of diseases that can make people sick. We don't necessarily see those cases in people, um, but there, there are rat-associated health risks and not just disease risks, right? You mentioned earlier wanting to get rid of a rat at any cost. Um, there are also mental health risks of living close alongside rats. 
But coming back to the disease, we actually did a study where we studied rats here in Vancouver, and we did sort of a simulated pest control study. So in some blocks, we were trapping rats, we were testing them for diseases, and we put them back out into the environment to track their movement and to track disease over time. In some of those blocks, just a few of them, we trapped and removed rats to simulate pest control, right? And what we found is in the blocks where we had removed rats, we actually saw after doing that an increase in the number of rats carrying this one disease called Leptospira. It's a bacteria that's carried in rat urine. It can give us a flu-like illness in people. And, and what we think is that, you know, when we go in and we remove animals, rats live in social groups. They live in families. So we change the dynamics among rats when we're removing them. They might fight more. They might bite more. And that could actually lead to an increase in disease spread. And, and what's, I guess, really important about that is we also need to think about the ecological consequences of our actions, because in some cases, the approaches we use might actually make disease risks worse. Okay, so all of that, all of that said, uh, final question, what do we do to control the rat population? Or if you have one in your house, get rid of it. There is no single solution to managing rats. And I think that's the biggest challenge, right? Rat management is incredibly complex. Rats intersect with almost all aspects of our cities, and we're treating them like it's really simple, like rat management's a simple solution. See a rat, kill a rat. Instead, I think what we need to do is start thinking about where rats are in our cities, where they affect people the most, and how we can integrate rat management strategies like waste removal programs and waste management, housing solutions, into other policies and programs in the city and sort of a multi-solving approach to addressing rats that doesn't just address rats, but also addresses other city issues. Again, not simple, but sort of a collaborative, multi-sector approach. All right. Kaylee Byers, she's a senior scientist with the Pacific Institute on Pathogens, Pandemics, and Society at Simon Fraser University. Thanks so much for the information and for being on the show this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning and welcome back. My name is Scott Schantz filling in for Mike Smith today and it's time to talk housing. No surprise here. It's expensive. That's uh, been the theme here in BC for a long, long time. And for many years, if you lived in like, the Lower Mainland, for example, or Vancouver, or Greater Vancouver, however you choose to refer to it, and things got expensive, you would look to other places in BC to move to, perhaps the Okanagan or uh, Vancouver Island or Prince George, Nelson, all of those type of places. But now it's getting to the point that even those places are getting so, so expensive. So what do you do to make ends meet? Well, it turns out that a lot of people are pulling up stakes and moving to Alberta, other provinces where things are cheaper, where there's an opportunity to make more money, and yes, to pay less taxes. And as this is happening, some people are saying that perhaps one of the ways that we combat people moving away from our province is to give them a break on some of the tax issues, particularly particularly the property transfer tax. And if you've ever bought or sold a home, you know that this is a very real, very expensive thing that some people have to navigate. Uh, so here now to comment and lead us through some of this is Tim Hill. He's a real estate advisor with Remax All Points Realty. Thanks so much for being here, Tim. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm really great. Yeah. Um, are you surprised by this to hear that big numbers of people are moving to Alberta? Have you seen this in, in your practice? Yeah, not, not surprised at all. Um, over the last year, year and a half, we've noticed the uptick with our clients that have been moving across province more than they've been staying within BC. 
And and is that something that they come in and they kind of look around in BC, like you show them a few places and then they realize we're not going to be able to make it here? And then they start to talk about Alberta, or is this something that like a lot of people are kind of thinking about, and then they just decide and, and make that move? I think it's a bit more of the consumer opinion, to be quite honest. Um, if you went back, say, three to five years ago, we had a lot more clients when they were moving out of the Lower Mainland, going to the Okanagan, going to the island. As we had our you know, frenzier markets over the last couple of years and significant price increases across BC, those markets became more unaffordable as well. They're more affordable than Greater Vancouver, um, but is it enough to allow someone to make that change of living? And it seems that right now, crossing provinces is allowing more clients to do that, put more money in their pocket, um, you know, save on their, their monthly costs and be able to enjoy their family time a bit more too without having to, to spend most of their money on their housing here to stay locally. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty big decision. You know, when I think about that for my family, and yes, I experience this difficulty of making ends meet as everything gets more expensive, but I think about moving my family somewhere else, and that's a big decision. You know, you got to change schools, find new jobs, move away from family and friends, build all of that again in a new place. So to undertake something like that, people must really be struggling to find housing and to just make ends meet. Yeah, and various things, I think, too. With cost of living and being able to, say you were extending your family, maybe you've got one child, you're thinking about having a second or a third, and you're looking at the price of what you would need to purchase locally to have that life for your family and have the space and and raise them the way you want. If you can get it somewhere else and find a way to possibly even work a little bit less because your cost of living goes down, there's a positive there. Another thing, though, employment for sure, that's one of the first topics that gets discussed. Qualifying for a mortgage uh, trust province if you don't have a job in place uh, it really isn't possible. Um, so if you've got a, a lateral move or a company that you can work from home maybe for uh, the longer term, right, as some companies have done, or hybrid models, even exemptions, because uh, employment is a key factor to even be able to make that move. And like you said, to family and friends, it, it, it's uplifting, right? You're doing a lot um, to move your family for a better future. Sure. Now let's talk about what role the property transfer tax plays in this. And we all sort of know this, think this, that BC is a lot a higher tax than a lot of other provinces. And one of the ones that we have here that is a, is a huge effect is if you're trying to buy a house, it's the buyer that pays the property transfer tax. Is that right? Correct. Yes, that's part of the buyer's closing cost. Okay. And in some cases, that can be like, how, how much does that constitute of the sale of a, of a, of a property? It, it adds up quickly. It's calculated at 1% on the first 200000 2% over that up to $2 million, And we're not usually talking past that on, on, on clients who are making these moves here. Um, but if you were buying a property at $1.5 say with a rental suite here, you'd be, um, you'd be looking at about 28000 in property transfer tax. Which can go a long way. I mean, for people who are struggling to make ends meet, Absolutely. I mean, I think when you talk about in the in the scope of 1.5 million, people think, oh, what's the big deal? You add an extra 30 grand onto that. But people are struggling to get to that 1.5 million. And I think that every little bit counts. And it's pretty easy for us to get to forget that when we think, oh, someone is spending this much on a home. They must That must be nothing for them. An extra 30 grand must be nothing for them. But no, no, that's not the case. Everyone is struggling to some degree. Now, what do you think the chances are, Tim, of something actually happening with this tax? Do you think the government cares at all, or they're just happy to get theirs? 
I, I do think it's very low probability. Um, I mean, we, we've been lobbying for, for decades. The tax came in at, at those rates in 1987 when home prices were very, very different values. And I think that's a, a really key takeaway to think about where home prices are today and, and what that capital costs. Another important thing is property transfer taxes capital. So whether it's coming from your home's equity of the sale or you have to save it. And, you know, like we've been discussing with the cost of living, saving 30000 on top of moving costs, legal fees, mortgage penalties, real estate fees, uh, it adds up really quickly to make that move. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that people are, as people are considering these moves to other provinces where they don't necessarily have property transfer tax, it does sort of seem like like greener pastures. Do you anticipate that we're going to see more people doing this, more people pulling up stakes and, and going to other provinces? What I do expect is the clients that are moving out of the lower mainland for lifestyle changes and cost of living changes are more likely to go across province now than they were a few years ago. So I think that trend will continue moving forward. And do you think that the BC government is concerned about this? Do you think that this is going to affect um, the real estate market here? That perhaps it could even cause prices to go down if we get sort of an influx of inventory as people move away? Well, and, and that's definitely a, a, something to consider. The the thing is, is, if you are selling a home here and not buying, that, that is lowering demand as well. Um, we've been in such a low inventory market for the last few years that it's, it's hard to picture a market where we aren't in low inventory. As far as property transfer tax directly affecting prices, I, I don't see that happening. I think it is more lifestyle-based and then just cost. If you move to Alberta, they don't have a transfer tax, so you're not paying that on your next purchase you're generally purchasing a larger home in a great neighborhood at a lower price, so you might be putting money in your pocket as well. Um, but property transfer tax is part of the equation when any client decides what they're going to do for a move. Okay. Now, we've talked about the interior and Vancouver Island. Are there any other markets in BC that you think are, are sort of, and maybe we shouldn't be doing this, but are sort of a hidden jewel or a, a lucky place that hasn't quite been hit yet where people who are looking to relocate might still be able to, to find a spot in BC for the right price? You know, I, I think like many out there, I'm still trying to find where that spot is. I, I'm not certain if it really does exist right now. Yeah, absolutely. I know that there are people who have talked about all the little cities on the island and all of the cities in the interior and the north interior. And yeah, you, it's not surprising that people are starting to look outside the province. Tim Hill, he's a real estate advisor with Remax All Points Realty. Thanks so much for your time and for the information this morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.